Last week in our study in the book of Acts, we looked at verses 1 through 13, and we saw the beginning of the persecution that, that was coming against the early church, where the Sadducees arrested Peter and John after this lame man was healed, and Peter had been telling everybody that they didn't heal this guy, but it was the resurrected Jesus who brought this guy, who healed this guy and made, restored his limbs and, and uh, gave him the strength to walk. But we noted, as we were talking last week, that when opposition arises against us, it shouldn't surprise us. And we gave two reasons. One was we said because whenever Jesus is working, be it in your life and your family, be it in our church, be it in our city, whenever Jesus is working, the enemy is always going to oppose. He doesn't like it when Jesus is working. And then the second reason why we said that uh, opposition shouldn't surprise us is because Jesus told us to expect persecution. He said, look, if they hated me, don't be surprised if they hated you as well. Well, then we spent the rest of our morning last week looking at how Jesus was manifested in that time of opposition. And if you missed last week's study, I really want to encourage you to go online, go on our app, listen to it, watch it, because our theme for this study, this in the book of Acts, is being the church in a broken world. And I think we saw some really, really good insights into that in our study last week. Well, today we are going to look at uh, we're going to make our way all the way to verse 31, but for the sake of, of um, context, I want us to uh, look at today, beginning, read here, beginning in verse um, 1. It says, now as they spoke to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So that's what was getting these religious leaders all worked up. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of them came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, that's Peter and John, in the midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name, by what authority have you done this? And so they're brought here before the Sanhedrin. We noted this last week. The Sanhedrin was the the Jewish Supreme Court. So this is pretty intense. This is pretty serious. And they're asking, by what name, by what power, by what authority have you done this? Notice verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and the elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to this helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. 
This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred amongst themselves saying, what shall we do with these to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Israel, and we cannot deny it. Now, this is amazing. These guys are recognizing, okay, a miracle has happened, but then to show us just how hard these men, their hearts were, and how much they were seeking to protect their own authority. Notice what it says in verse 17. It says, but so that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to, to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God? You judge like that doesn't sound right to us, but you know, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Pause there for a minute and give me your attention. So this morning, we want to look at this opposition that comes against Peter and John, against the early church. And we want to see four ways that these religious leaders came against them, because it's going to give us insight into how the enemy seeks to come against us today. And then we'll spend the rest of our time looking at verses 22 through 31 and seeing how the church responded to this opposition. So that'll be our outline for today. Does that sound good? All right, let's pray together. Father, we realize that we are in a battle. We realize today, God, as as we um, look at what was happening in the early church, that it's very similar to what we see happening in our day and age. And so, God, I pray today that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us. And, Lord, that you would be teaching us and instructing us what it looks like for us to be your church in this broken world in which we are living. That you, Lord, would be manifested in our lives. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the primary objections that people have today about Christianity is is this idea that we say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. You know, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Plus, in our society, it's sort of an unspoken rule that you don't tell other people that their religion is wrong. 
Our culture says if, if you want to be considered civilized and an educated person, then don't say anything that would imply that your belief system is better than someone else's. They'll say, okay, you can be sincere about your beliefs and you can be excited about your beliefs, but keep it on the down low. Don't try to, you know, convert anybody else. That's the message that our society just constantly puts forth. But I want you to understand this morning that that's not a new controversy. This isn't new. People sometimes think that. But what we see here in Acts chapter 4 is that the apostle, the trouble that the apostles are in and the opposition that they are facing is for the exact same reasons that we sometimes experience today. You see, the apostles are not in trouble for privately believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But no, they're in trouble because they've shared that with others. And at this point in the book of Acts, there's upwards of over 5,000 people who have believed their message and have become followers of Jesus as well. The title of the message today is Spiritual Warfare 101, because we need to understand that we are in a battle. And so again, we're going to look at these four ways that the Sadducees came against Peter and John, and they're going to, it's going to give us insight into how the enemy comes against us. So the first way that we see that the Sadducees came against Peter and John, we see there in verse three is it says that they physically laid hands on them. And I want to just say, and it wasn't to pray for them. Okay. We just had this amazing week of prayer and fasting where we gathered 15 times um, over five days to pray and seek the Lord together. And it was an amazing time. And we had upwards of 650 people at, combined at all of our gatherings. I know many of you came to multiple of those prayer gatherings. But in our evening prayer gatherings, we were praying that God would heal people, that he would touch people, that he would give them breakthrough. And people People were getting into the middle of the circle and we would lay hands on them to pray for them. And God has been answering those prayers. It's been just awesome to see how God moved in our hearts and in our, our fellowship. And I think he was really, really blessed and pleased with uh, our heart to press into him in that way. But that's not what's happening here. They weren't laying hands on Peter and John to pray for them. They were, this was a physical attack. Now in our, in our country, Christians are not being attacked physically, or at least not very much, but that is happening in many other countries today. In fact, there are at least 50 countries in the world today where Christians are physically harmed for their faith. According to Open Doors Ministry, it reported that martyrdom rose by more than a thousand people from the previous year. That almost 6,000 people, 5,898 Christians were killed in 2022 for their faith. Another high was registered in the number of Christians that have been abducted. That it was 3,829, representing, get this, an increase of 124% 
Christians being abducted. 66% of that was in Nigeria. Another 26 was in Pakistan. But Christians in these different places in the world are being abducted. And we're not sure what happens to them afterwards because of their faith. By far the largest category to change was, a, was total displacement with over 200,000 Christians forced to leave their homes or go into hiding for faith-related reasons. So here in the United States, we're not facing that type of persecution yet. But I think if the Lord does tarry in his coming for his church, we could very well experience this type of persecution, unfortunately. Now, we need to remember, and I want to encourage you to do this, and in, in your you know, prayer time during the week, have a day, have a time where you are praying for the persecuted church, for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are going through that. They need our prayers. But the first thing that we see here, the way that they came against them was to lay hands on them. The second way that we see the Sadducees opposed the apostles was to question their authority. Look at verse 7. It says, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? It was a question of of their authority. Who gave you the authority to do these things? And that is something that is happening right now to Christians in our world, in, in our country. And this is what it looks like oftentimes. People will say to us, what gives you the right, Christian, to tell me who I can sleep with or can't sleep with and who I can, can or can't marry. They'll say, what gives you the right, Christian, to tell me what I can do with my body? What gives you the right to tell me that Jesus is the only way to heaven? What gives you the right to be able to, to tell me you know, what gender I am? Those are the type of things that we are facing Today And they'll say, you know, do you, are you telling me that because you think you're better or you're smarter than the rest of us? Now, most Christians don't go around claiming to be better or smarter, you know, than everyone else. And most Christians are not going around attacking people who don't believe the way that they do. Most Christians don't do that. Some, unfortunately, do they cast a bad light on the rest of us. But the, the most of us, we're not doing that. But the way that we are simply just living our lives, the fact that you are, are here on playoff Sunday and you're, you're, you're here at church, you know, and when the game's going to start at noon, right? And, and, but you're here, people are like, why, why are you going to church? You know, what's that about? People look at you and the way that you live your life and, and it convicts them. You know, it's been said that if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that gets hit is the one that barks the loudest. And that's what we see oftentimes, you know, in our culture today. And Jesus said that shouldn't surprise us because in John 3, he said, the darkness hates the lights because the light exposes their evil deeds. And sometimes it's just in the way that we live our lives for Jesus, the way that, that we you know, just conduct ourselves, it has a way of convicting those around us who are not living their lives in that way. So it's not a matter of claiming to be better or, be, or being smarter than anyone else. I mean, look at our text. Is Peter claiming to be smarter? 
No, not at all. In fact, the text goes out of its way to point out to us that Peter and John, it wasn't a matter, they weren't that smart. I mean, think about this. This kind of cracks me up. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was a doctor. So Luke was smart. And Luke was friends with Peter and John. And Luke kind of goes out of his way to tell us that Peter and John really weren't that bright. Look at verse 13 again. It says, he he says this, he writes this. and, And the religious leaders looked at them and they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. And you wonder if Peter and John later on, you know, after reading that said to Luke, was that really necessary? (laughs) Did you really have to put that in there? You know, now, To be fair, and it's worth noting, Luke adds that they marveled because they realized that they had been with Jesus. And that's the best compliment that anyone can give to you. But I want you to see, there's no presumption in Peter here to superior intelligence. Peter simply says, look at verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, this has nothing to do with being smarter. Peter knew that these men, this Sanhedrin, this group that he was talking about, they were the intellectual elites in their society. These were the guys who were, had, the, had massive IQs. They were much learned. But this is what Peter says. You're telling us to be quiet, but we can't because we're just testifying to what we have heard. And this is what we heard. Jesus said to us in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. We're just, that's what Jesus said. Jesus makes this absolute statement that he is the only way to salvation, that that eternal life is only found in him. And Peter's saying, we're just repeating what he said, and we're just testifying to what we have seen. And what did we see? We saw you guys crucify Jesus, but then we saw God raise him from the dead three days later. So Peter's claim and our claim that salvation is only found in Jesus has nothing to do with believing that we are intellectually or morally superior, but it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. And because he rose again from the dead, we believe that he is who he claimed to be, God in human flesh and the only one who could save us from our sins and give us eternal life. You see, everything hinges on the resurrection. And we talked about last week how there in verse 11, Peter gives this analogy, quotes from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm about the cornerstone. And in Israel, when they were building buildings, they would, the the cornerstone was the most important stone in that whole building. It was the foundation stone and everything would, would be taken off of that. It was the foundation of the building and all the angles of the building were connected to that. It was the reference point for the rest of the building. And if the cornerstone was off, the whole building would be off. Well, Jesus, or Peter is saying, Jesus is that prophesied cornerstone that you guys rejected. 
Jesus, he's the reference point for life. He's the reference point for living. So that, don't miss this. When questions come up today or people are confused about life today, what do we do? We just point to Jesus. We just point to him. People are wondering today about eternal life. And we say, Jesus said eternal life is only found in him. In fact, Jesus has already answered all the questions that our culture is wrestling and struggling with today. For instance, people are wondering today about marriage and who really should be allowed to get married. And Jesus said, it's really, really clear. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what Jesus said. And people are wondering today about gender and can we change our gender and all of that. And Jesus said that God made us male and female. And people are wondering today about when does life really begin? And Jesus affirmed what the Bible had to say about when life begins, that it begins at conception. That it's a baby that God has formed there in that womb. So we just point to Jesus. It's not that we're smarter or better than anyone else. We're just repeating what Jesus has already said. Now, some, though, they'll, they'll argue still with that and they'll say, well, that's just, I just don't like anything that is exclusive. Anything that puts other people on the outside, I just think that is not right. Let's be honest. All secular ideologies are exclusive. They are. All of them have a place, a dividing line where you are either in or you are out. For instance, right now in secular colleges and universities all over this country, if you believe in a God who created the world and you don't believe in evolution, you're excluded. They look at you as being simple-minded, unintelligent, not very smart. If you do not practice or believe in pro-choice, or if you are not for free sexual expression, we're done with you. That's the mindset. They're, they're, the secular ideologies in our world today are very, very dogmatic. They're very exclusive. But here's what we need to understand. The gospel of Jesus is a different kind of exclusivity. Because the gospel teaches that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. It's not based on our moral track record. It's not based on our education. It's not based on our race or our political viewpoints. It's based on this, that God gives salvation as a gift to anyone who repents of their sin, that realizes that they are a sinner and they've fallen short of the glory of God, and they turn from their sin, and they turn to God by placing their faith in Jesus who died on the cross for their sins and rose again to give them life. That's what our salvation is based upon. And I love how Timothy Keller puts it when he says Christianity is the most inclusive 
exclusivity that there is. I love that. You see, when you truly believe in Jesus for your salvation, you don't become arrogant or judgmental because you realize that you are not accepted by God because of your good works or because you figured out the truth or because you were smarter than everyone else. No, you realize that you were lost and you were on your way to hell and God found you. You realize that you were in bondage to sin and addiction and bitterness and God freed you. How amazing is that? You realize that you were lame and messed up and paralyzed because of your sin and God healed you. And when we realize that it's all about God's grace, that I didn't do anything to deserve this salvation, you know what it does? It humbles you. It makes you more gracious and loving and forgiving because of what God has done for you. You know, in 2007, in October of 2007, the Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, experienced a horrific tragedy. A gunman who was mad at God took over an Amish school and sent out all the kids except for 10 girls, and he lined them all up against the chalkboard. Now, two of the girls offered to have themselves shot for their friends if he would just let them go. He proceeded to shoot all 10 of them, and then he killed himself. Five of the girls survived. That's how come we know this story. And in the aftermath of this tragedy, the parents of one of the girls who had died got into their little buggy and they drove to the home of the shooter and they went up and they knocked on the door. And when his wife answered the door, she was startled to see this family knowing that her husband had killed their little girl. And this is what they said to the wife. They said, we're not here for revenge. We have lost our daughter, but your children have lost a father, and you have lost a husband. We're not here for revenge. We are here to grieve together. How amazing is that? How incredible is that? Even the cynical journalist said something supernatural and divine was happening there. Now think about this, though. Amish people are really a fundamentalist group. Some would even call them legalistic because many Amish don't live with the modern amenities that we do today. They don't have phones and cell phones and cars and TV, and sometimes they don't even have electricity. But let me ask you this question. Where did these girls get the idea to die for their friends? And where did the parents get the idea to forgive this killer and his family? Here's where. Even in a fundamentalist group like the Amish, they have at the center of their faith, just like we do, a God who died on the cross 
for our sins. Because he loved people who didn't love him back. And he gave himself for people who hated him. You see, Jesus came and he died on that cross to pay the price for our sins. And then he rose again from the dead to give life to anyone who puts their faith in him. And when you realize that, Amish or not, when you understand that measure of God's grace that has been given to you, when that captures your heart, you want to show grace and love and forgiveness to others. You have compassion on others, even those who have the hardest of hearts, even those who just seem the furthest away from God, because this is what you understand when God's grace has captured your own heart in that way. When you look at that person whose heart is just so hard against God, you realize, except for the grace of God, there go I. That could be me. I could be that person. So, back to our story. The Sadducees uh, come against them physically. They question number two, their authority. And we're going to put numbers three and four together of the ways the Sadducees sought to oppose the apostles. We see in verse 17 and in verse 19, they threatened them. And then in verse 18, they tried to silence them. And you know what? The world around us is trying to do the same thing, to threaten us, to intimidate us, and to silence us. It's this cancel culture that we are living in. And we noted in one of our prophecy updates a few months ago that cancel culture is one of the signs of the times that we are living in the last days because it will be at the forefront of everything when the Antichrist comes into uh, power. It will be cancel culture you know, on steroids when he comes into power. But we live in a culture today where Christians are being canceled out of jobs for standing for their faith in Jesus and their beliefs. In fact, I've seen that happen to a couple people already in our church. And I think if the Lord tarries, it's going to get a lot worse, a lot worse. So those are some of the insights concerning the opposition that was coming against the early church. And we see some parallel as to the opposition that is coming against us today. Now, I want us to spend the rest of our time today looking at how the early church responded to this. And there's three quick things that I want us to notice. Let's begin reading in verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So Peter and John go out and they say, hey, this is what they told us. This is how they threatened us. They're trying to silence us. Here's the response. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Here's the first way that we see that the early church responded. They remembered 
that God is sovereign. Look at verse 23 again. It says, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made everything. And then notice in verse 28, it says, and you do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. See, the early church understood that the opposition that came against Jesus and the opposition that was coming against them now, this was all a part of God's plan. It was what Jesus told them to expect. They realized, listen, they realized what we often forget, that God ordained that living for Jesus and his kingdom in a secular society was not going to be easy. They understood that. You see, Jesus had told them in John chapter 16, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. So first of all, he's saying, look, I'm telling you this so you don't freak out when it starts happening, all right? When you see these things happening. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. Jesus says, look, living for me in this world, know this, you're going to have tribulation. It comes with the territory, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It's all part of God's sovereign plan, in other words. Now, here's a question. What would change about your perspective if you saw everything in your life, both good and bad, as sovereignly ordained by God? That it was given for the purpose, for God's mission. It was allowed in your life because of what God is seeking to do in and through your life for the furtherance of his kingdom and his mission. You see, it's really a question of do we really truly believe that Jesus is on the throne? You know, sometimes bad things happen. You lose your job. Your health takes a downturn. And when those things happen, our first reaction is usually one of shock and sorrow, which is completely normal. That's human nature to respond in that way. But what if our next reaction was this? To say, God, I believe that you have allowed this disability, this loss, this disease to help further your mission. And what would happen, church, if we asked the question in those times, Lord, how do you want to leverage this situation to further your kingdom and further your mission? How do you want to use this thing in my life for your glory? What would happen if we said to the Lord, Lord, I'm giving myself to you as a living sacrifice, and you can use my life as a platform, a stage that other people are going to be looking at where you can be glorified upon, where you can do and you can be seen. What would happen if we truly believed that the bad things as well as the good things were all a part of God's sovereign plan? Speaking of good things, not just the bad things, but what if you get blessed in some way? You get that raise, you get that promotion, you're blessed with a talent or you're blessed with more money or more resources, but instead of thinking, I did this, 
I got that raise because I'm so awesome and I'm so great or I worked so hard or I pulled off that great big deal. What if we truly believe what the Bible said that every good and perfect gift is from God? That God's the one that is working and orchestrating those things in our lives. And so we said, Lord, I realize that, that you haven't given me these things in order just to make my life easier or for me to go out and buy more cool stuff. But this is all a part of your sovereign plan so that my life can bring you glory. So that I can greater impact your mission and your kingdom. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to show me how to do that with these blessings that you have brought into my life. Imagine how different our approach to life would be if we truly believed that God was sovereign. And so this is the first thing that we see. They remember that God is sovereign. Okay, God's sovereign. He's on the throne. He's allowing this. We need to embrace it. The second thing that they did, their second response was to pray for boldness. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord... Look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word. I want you to notice this. Notice that in the face of danger, what was their instinctive reflex? It was prayer. What would ours have been? What would mine have been? I'm sure there might be some today who would say, okay, new rule, Peter and John can never go out together. We need to separate them. They're too valuable for you know, the kingdom of God. Or someone else, we need to have a security detail with those guys all the time, right? In our culture today, someone might have said, um, you know what, I, maybe we need to rethink our message. Because this message of you guys killed Jesus and you need to repent of that, it's just not working very well. You know, maybe we should lead with the prodigal son. Everybody kind of likes that story, you know. That's how people maybe would have reacted today. But what was their first instinctive reflex? It was to pray. And listen, when you are walking in the Spirit, prayer is your natural reflex. You know why? Because when you're walking in the Spirit, you realize that you are utterly dependent upon God for everything. It's kind of like breathing, that we just breathe, that we, we need air to breathe. And when you're walking in the Spirit, you, you realize it's instinctive that you need to pray and talk to God constantly in order to live. But I love this prayer. They pray, Lord, give us boldness. Isn't boldness the thing that got them into this mess? Because they were being so bold. What do we typically pray for in times of persecution or pain? We'll, we'll pray for deliverance and we'll pray for protection, right? And I'm sure they wanted those things, but I want you to catch this. Before they prayed for a positive outcome around them, they prayed for a faithful spirit within them. Let me say that again. Before they prayed for a positive outcome around them, they prayed for a faithful spirit within them. They prayed that God would help them to be bold, that they could share the gospel regardless of the outcome. They asked God to help them respond in boldness and faith no matter what the situation. You know, it's been said in times of difficulty, don't pray for a lighter load, but pray for a stronger back. So we see they prayed for boldness. 
The third response we see is that they prayed that God would continue to manifest his presence and his power in them and among them. Notice this. In verse 29, they pray for boldness to preach the word. And then it says in verse 30, and by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This was a declaration of their dependency upon Jesus. It was their way of saying, Lord, we, we need you to manifest your power because we understand that we cannot stand on our own. We can't reach our community on our own. We, we need you to stretch out your hand to heal. We need you to manifest your supernatural power in signs and wonders. This prayer was an expression for a desire for more. When you put it simply, this is what they're asking for. Jesus, you've been working and manifesting your power, and we're just asking you to do it more. That we need more of you in our lives. We need more of you in this place. We can't do this by ourselves. Lord, we, Jesus, we need more of you. And notice the result, verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. The building starts shaking. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. As we close today, I want to ask you this question. Do you desire more of Jesus in your life? Do you see the need for more of Jesus in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your parenting, in your ministry? Do you need more? Can I encourage you today to cry out to him? Can I encourage you today to to say, Jesus, I need more of you in this area of my life? I think it's amazing. It says that the building where they were gathering was shaken. I love this. I think we need to pray, Jesus, shake us up. You know why? You know when we are the least likely to ask for more is when we're comfortable. When everything just is going great. But when things start being shaken up in our lives, that's when we say, Lord, I can't do this. I need more of you. Do you need more boldness to tell people that you live with and work with and that are part of your family about Jesus? Can I encourage you to tell them that? To seek prayer on that? Do you need more of his Holy Spirit filling your life in order to stand for him? Can I encourage you? As we close our time today, this is what we're going to do. The band, I'm going to have the band come up right now and, and we're going to begin to just worship a little bit. And here's how I think the Lord wants us to respond today to what we've heard, to what we're seeing in the apostles about example to us of how to be the church in a broken world. Is I'm going to have our pastors, our elders, people on our prayer team, they're going to all be up front here. As we begin to worship, I just want to encourage you, if you are here today and you're like, I need more of Jesus in my life, come forward and get prayer. Allow them to pray for you. If you are saying, Lord, I need boldness because I want to be able to testify and tell people and share the gospel with people, but, but I'm timid, come forward and, and, and let him pray for you for boldness. 
If you're here today and you're like, Lord, I, I need more of you. I need to be filled afresh with your Holy Spirit. Come forward and let him pray for you today. Lay hands on you and pray for you. They prayed that Jesus would manifest himself in a more powerful way in their midst with signs and wonders and healing. And maybe you're today and you need a healing in your life. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's spiritually, maybe it's emotionally, but you're like, Jesus, I need you to touch me. Maybe you feel bound in something. Come forward today. And allow these guys to pray for you. Or you can come forward today and just kneel down here before the Lord because as I always say, it's such a beautiful promise. God says, I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. And maybe you're, Lord, I need more of your grace. That's what we want to do right now. Is just bring our lives before him in that way. And so as the band begins to lead us in worship, if God's stirring your heart and you're like, yes, I want more, come forward and allow these guys and gals to lay hands on you and pray for you. Let's do that.